Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine. We review the medical literature and we review case studies. Today's show topic is how to reduce type 2 diabetes risk by substituting refined carbohydrate with complex or intact carbohydrate. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin C. Mackey. He is co-founder and chief scientist for MB Clinical Research. He has participated in more than 250 clinical trials and observational studies, published more than 200 scientific papers, books, and book chapters, and earned a PhD in epidemiology from the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health and a master's in science in preventive and rehabilitative cardiovascular health from Benedictine University. And he co-authored an interesting paper in the Journal of Nutrition in 2015 entitled Dietary Substitutions for Refined Carbohydrate that Show Promise for reducing the risk of type 2 diabetes in men and women. So, thanks, Dr. Mackey, for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, before we get into the topic, tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you came from and how you got to this position of being interested in diabetes and carbohydrates. Sure. I've always been interested in lifestyle and how lifestyle affects risks for chronic diseases, particularly heart disease and type 2 diabetes. I spent five years as a research scientist in the Department of Veterans Affairs. After that, I left and ran the Human Nutrition and Metabolism Research Unit for a private research company. After that, I founded my own private research company, and we do clinical trials to test new drugs to make sure they're safe and doing what they're supposed to be doing, and also lifestyle interventions with a focus on risk factors for heart disease and diabetes, so I've had a long-standing interest in nutrition and dietary interventions, which is very timely now, especially given the uh, epidemic that we've seen of type 2 diabetes developing in this country. So when you describe an epidemic, what's that mean to you as, as far as type 2 diabetes, some numbers and impact? Well, an epidemic is an increase in the incidence of a disease, and when you have a sustained increase, it's really referred to as a pandemic, where you have an increase that's sustained over an extended period, and that's what we're seeing with diabetes. So since 1980 or so, we've seen roughly a doubling in the prevalence of obesity in the population, and that's been followed uh, with about a 10-year lag by a large increase in the incidence and the prevalence of type 2 diabetes. And uh, I think that both heart disease and diabetes are largely lifestyle diseases. And so getting at the root causes means influencing lifestyle in a way that will reduce the triggers for the development of these conditions. Having said that, there's also a place for pharmacologic therapy to control risk factors. Uh, when the risk is high enough and the risk-reward ratio is favorable. So you talked about uh, being overweight as being a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, but what are some of the other risk factors that are lifestyle-oriented? Like, you know, what's, what do you think the cause is of diabetes as far as from diet, let's say? Well, essentially diabetes develops when you have two things. Uh, you have insulin resistance that persists over an extended period, and obesity is one of the causes of insulin resistance, but there are other lifestyle factors that influence insulin sensitivity 
And these include physical activity, so exercise that uh, we tell patients is uh, something you can think of as being like a pill that it takes 30 minutes to swallow. So uh, when you exercise, insulin sensitivity is improved, you have kind of a halo effect. So for maybe 48 hours or so after the exercise session, you'll have improved insulin sensitivity, but the effect wears off. So if you don't keep exercising, then you will have higher insulin resistance or lower insulin sensitivity. And so you have to keep doing it, just like if you're taking a pill to lower blood pressure, you have to keep taking it or blood pressure will go up. In addition, there are a number of dietary factors that have been associated with lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And in particular, a diet that is low in refined starches and added sugars and high in cereal and fruit fibers has been associated with uh, lower risk for developing type 2 diabetes, but we need clinical trials to really confirm that because most of what we have is based on observational evidence where uh, population studies are showing these associations. We think there are reasons to believe that these associations reflect causal relationships, but we need clinical trials to demonstrate that. Well, I got it. I'm old school. I go back to uh, James W. Anderson, endocrinologist from University of Kentucky, uh, back in the 70s, where he had the HCF diet, which was a high carbohydrate, high fiber diet. So I don't. It confuses me because to me the answer is simple. You eat unprocessed carbohydrate that is close to the ground as possible. You get all the fiber in it. You get slower release blood sugar, and the cultures that do that innately in their dietary pattern usually because they're too poor to do anything else, don't get diabetes. So I, it kind of confuses me why they're so, it's, it's controversial. I just listened to a um, TED Talk, and, you know, that person there was, you know, carbs are the cause of diabetes, and you, you eat fat, and she said her clinic shows it this way. And then I, I've gone and seen Caldwell Esselstyn, who reverses heart disease with a strict plant-based high-fiber diet, and diabetics do well on that, and Dr. Furman and, and John McDougall. So I, I wonder why it's so confusing, because people are so confused about carbs. Can you throw some light on that? Sure. I think part of the confusion relates to the differences in the types of carbohydrate foods that people eat. So when people are eating a lot of carbohydrates from refined starches where uh, they're low fiber, high sort of rapid digestible carbohydrate content, and diets that contain a lot of added sugars, these probably increase the risk of developing diabetes, whereas intakes of whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes that are high in dietary fiber have slowly digested and released carbohydrate so that you don't get these large spikes in blood glucose that require a high insulin response to dispose of that carbohydrate. You know, that is associated with lower risk of developing diabetes. So the difficulty, I think, comes in in distinguishing between unrefined sources of carbohydrates that are high in fiber and, in particular, two types of fiber, uh, fermentable fiber and then also viscous fiber. Viscous fiber slows the rate of glucose absorption after it's consumed, and fermentable fibers probably release short-chain fatty acids into the bloodstream. The short-chain fatty acids 
suppress the release of free fatty acids from adipose tissue in the late postprandial period, and uh, that likely improves insulin sensitivity. So I think that the type of carbohydrate matters, and also I think that the type of fiber consumed matters, and viscous fibers and fermentable fibers seem to be those that have mechanistic effects that would be expected to lower the risk of diabetes. I'll also mention this coming issue of New England Journal of Medicine this week has a story or a paper about pioglitazone, which is an insulin-sensitizing drug, when it was given to people who had had a stroke or a transient ischemic attack, the risk of recurrent cardiovascular events was reduced, and also the risk of developing diabetes was reduced. And so the effects of the drug pioglitazone are similar to the effects that you see with uh, consuming fermentable fibers that, uh, at least in some studies, increase insulin sensitivity. So for the audience, can you just name some foods that have the fermentable fibers? And when you say fermentable fibers, are you talking also about resistant starch? Resistant starch is uh, a type of starch that acts partly as a fiber and partly as a starch. So it is partially digested in the small intestine, and some of it reaches the large intestine where it can be fermented by colonic bacteria, and the fermentation process releases short-chain fatty acids. And a variety of foods that are high in fiber will contain some degree of resistant starch, and so the foods that contain fermentable fibers, resistant starch, and viscous fibers are things like nuts, seeds, legumes, uh, and in particular, things like pinto beans, which uh, are known for uh, their effects, which in part relate to fermentation, are a good thing to consume because they're high in resistant starch and fiber. Uh, things that contain viscous fiber are uh, prunes and oat bran and uh, barley, and the viscous fiber in those foods not only slows the absorption of glucose immediately after a meal, but also uh, those are fermentable fibers that probably improve insulin sensitivity above and beyond the effect that they have acutely to slow glucose absorption. So where does the, um, I mean, it makes so much common sense, uh, but where does the rice come in? So we have a, a traditional Asian societies and, and there wasn't a lot of obesity there and it wasn't all brown rice. Um, I've interviewed the, um, Dr. Wilcox from Okinawa, and originally it was brown rice, and now it's a little bit more white rice. But is white, rice in either state a more um, neutral to diabetes, or is white rice, in your mind, bad for diabetes? Well, I guess it depends in part on the individual. So in Asian cultures where rice was a staple in the diet, but the lifestyle was high in physical activity, there was very little obesity, you know, there were lots of differences in traditional Asian lifestyles as compared to the lifestyle that is typical in the U.S. So if someone is lean and has high physical activity, then a person can probably eat quite a bit of rice without uh, any issues, uh, whether it's white rice or brown rice. When somebody is overweight or obese and sedentary, then consuming too much 
uh, white rice, as an example, would um, perhaps provide more refined starch uh, than would be ideal. And so I don't want to give the impression that there are good foods and bad foods. I think that things like white rice and potatoes can be included in the diet, but they should be eaten sparingly and emphasis should be on consumption of brown rice, uh, whole grain breads, whole grain cereals, and so forth as better alternatives to white rice. Um, and I think that if someone's a marathon runner, they can probably eat quite a lot of white rice without uh, you know, having any issues. But if someone is sedentary and obese, then you know, eating a lot of white rice uh, might be problematic. Uh, we are talking to Dr. Uh, Kevin C. Mackey. He's a co-founder and chief scientist for MB Clinical Research, wrote an interesting article entitled Dietary Substitutions for Refined Carbohydrate that Show Promise for Reducing the Risk of Type 2 Diabetes in Men and Women in the Journal of Nutrition 2015. So I've got kind of the, uh, I mean, I think, uh, I hope the audience has got it that, that, you know, most intact carbohydrate, when I say intact, I mean that it's in its whole state, is generally pretty good for diabetes because it's going to have fiber of either kind, correct? Correct. So how about fruit? Let's talk about fruit for a second. Whole fruit. Your comments on that and, and diabetic risk and the type of fiber there. Sure. I think that uh, there are mixed data with regard to fruit fiber and risk of diabetes. So there was a publication from the Nurses Health Study recently that found that both cereal fiber and fruit fiber intake were associated with lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but vegetable fiber intake was not associated. Previously, in a meta-analysis that was done by Schultz in 2007, their data suggested that it's mainly cereal fiber, and if you ask me, I think it's probably the specific subsets of cereal fibers that are fermentable in the colon that was associated with lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I think that there are various types of fruit fibers. Some are fermentable, some are non-fermentable or very uh, modestly fermentable. And so I think that in general, uh, Americans should eat more fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes. And so there are lots of other good reasons to eat fruits uh, beyond lowering the risk of diabetes. Berries in particular are high in polyphenolic compounds that have been associated with lower risk of developing diabetes, heart disease, and certain types of cancers in observational studies. And so I you know, encourage people to eat fruits. Um, I encourage people especially to focus on fruits that are uh, dark in color, you know, berries like uh, blueberries and cranberries and raspberries, um, and uh, these are especially good as alternatives to high-sugar dessert items. So um, with regard to diabetes risk, the data are somewhat mixed, but in general, uh, I recommend following the dietary guidelines for Americans and on average, the U.S. diet has lower intake of uh, fruit than would be ideal. All right, let's talk about two other major food food parts, and that is fat consumption and meat consumption. 
I read about intramyocellular fat. I asked about about that in a, a written interview I did with you. Some people believe it increases insulin sensitivity. Uh, excuse me, insensitivity. It makes it harder for uh, insulin to push sugar into the cell if you have too much fat in the muscle cell. I'm wondering if you can comment on that and with respect to dietary fat that you consume and diabetes. Sure. Well, with regard to uh, intramyocellular fat, we know that higher fat in the muscle cells is associated with insulin resistance, but it's not clear whether that's a cause or an effect. So one possibility is that when you have chronically high levels of free fatty acids in the blood, that is leading to ectopic deposition of fat in muscle cells. It's also leading to ectopic deposition of fat in liver cells. And so if you think about what the liver does with fat, uh, the liver gets free fatty acids uh, from the bloodstream. It can do three things with them. It can uh, burn them for energy. It can package them into triglycerides to send out in VLDL particles or it can package those triglycerides and deposit them ectopically. In muscle cells, you have a similar situation, except you don't have the ability to make VLDL particles in muscle cells. And so the muscle cells can burn the fatty acids, or they can deposit the triglyceride made from those fatty acids ectopically. And so with regard to whether insulin resistance is a cause or an effect of intramuscular fat, that's uncertain, but we know that uh, interventions that improve insulin sensitivity tend to reduce intramuscular fat, and so uh, weight loss, increased physical activity, and then possibly uh, interventions such as uh, consuming viscous and fermentable fibers that improve insulin sensitivity uh, may uh, reduce muscle fat, although we need more studies on that. Let me me ask you this. The things that can increase these free fatty acids, can fat consumption by itself do it and or excess sugar or processed carbohydrate do it as well? In other words, what causes these free fatty acids to go up? Can it be a a non-fat source? Mainly the elevation in free fatty acids is due to expansion of adipose tissue stores. So The larger fat cells are, the more free fatty acids they release into the bloodstream. And also, the location of fat is a determinant of how much free fatty acid is released. So intra-abdominal fat stores are more metabolically active. They release more fatty acids into the bloodstream. And so, you know, people who have more of an apple shape as compared to a pear shape will tend to have higher average free fatty acid levels uh, as they have expansion, especially of intra-abdominal fat stores. So that's the main determinant. But there are dietary factors that relate to free fatty acids as well. Dietary fat uh, is not probably a primary determinant uh, of the free fatty acid level in the blood, although it's certainly a contributor. Now, there's a lot of uh, controversy about whether we should be worried about the quantity of fat in the diet or only concerned about the quality of fat in the diet. And the most recent dietary guidelines for Americans have taken the position that liberalization of total fat intake um, is something that can be considered. So they've removed the recommendation 
for an upper level of percent of energy from fat with an emphasis on keeping saturated fatty acids low and emphasizing unsaturated types of fatty acids. So as an example, the Mediterranean diet tends to be high in olive oil and a Mediterranean diet differs from an average U.S. diet in a number of respects, not just olive oil. There are many other factors, more seafood intake, more intake of fruits and vegetables, and so forth. But a Mediterranean dietary pattern has been associated with lower risk of developing both type 2 diabetes and heart disease. In addition to that, the PREDIMED study, which was a trial in which People at high risk for heart disease were randomly assigned to receive low-fat dietary advice or a Mediterranean diet uh, instruction, and the Mediterranean diet instruction was supplemented with either olive oil or nuts, and in both of the Mediterranean diet groups, lower risk was observed for both heart disease and diabetes. So um, my view is that we should be aiming to keep saturated fatty acid intake low and unsaturated fatty acids, especially those from non-tropical oils and nuts, um, are good substitutions for foods that are high in added sugars and refined starches. Well, I, before I'd like to make a comment on the Prediman study, because I, I actually, you know, I interview a lot of people who do more of the, the lower fat, and I interviewed one of the researchers um, to the Prediman study, and that low-fat diet wasn't a low-fat diet. It was a 37% calorie-fat diet, and the, and the olive oil diet was a 42% uh, calorie-fat diet. And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of the people like John McDougall or, or uh, Dr. Neil Barnard and a lot of the clinics that actually put people on strict plant-based diets are more around 10% fat, and that to me is a low-fat diet, like Dr. Esselton's has been shown to reverse heart disease. So that one I'm a little sensitive of because that wasn't a low-fat diet. You go back and read it. I'll just interrupt. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. It wasn't a low-fat diet. It was lower-fat dietary advice, and what people actually did was a relatively high-fat diet, even by a U.S. standards. Right. So, um, having said that, uh, I think that the take-home message is that the higher fat intake from unsaturated fats in the Mediterranean diet groups was associated with improved outcomes. But we need more trials to really look at, um, as an example, a low-fat, high, unrefined carbohydrate type of diet, and those haven't been done yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to see the comparison between Dr. Esselstyn's diet that was published in Family Practice, which is about a 10% fat diet. They don't add oils to it, compared to the Mediterranean diet of the 42% fat diet of the Prediman study. But anyway, let's, there's one last topic on, on this that's very important. Does meat consumption, in your mind, aggravate the risk of diabetes, or is it the way we eat it in our culture, you know, first of all, the westernization of it, or you think there's no problems with meat consumption and diabetes risk? Well, I think that there we have a confusing body of evidence. On the one hand, in observational studies, higher consumption of meat is associated with increased risk of diabetes. But you have to be concerned about confounding there because higher meat consumption is associated with a lot of other factors that could be influencing risk of diabetes. So lower physical activity, higher uh, prevalence of smoking, uh, you know, less 
health concern in general. And so I think we need to be a bit careful about interpreting the epidemiologic data. With regard to the results from intervention studies, there are very few of those. The limited number we have suggests no adverse effect of higher lean meat intake on the determinants of glucose tolerance, so things like insulin sensitivity, but this is based on a very limited body of evidence. So I think that uh, the jury is out with regard to uh, meat intake. Now, high-fat meats are going to be high in saturated fat, and so I think that one thing we can be confident in recommending to people is uh, when they select meats, they should uh, try for uh, the leaner cuts of meat that are going to be lower in saturated fat. There are some other theoretical uh, reasons to believe that higher meat intake could uh, produce risk factors for heart disease and diabetes, but the limited evidence from clinical trials, especially the BOLD study uh, that was published a few years ago um, out of uh, Penny Chris lab, suggests no adverse effects of meat intake, but I think that essentially, um, you know, we don't have enough good intervention study data to draw from conclusion. So let's close by trying to give a picture to the audience. If I'm going to put words in your mouth and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that you're encouraging people when they eat a carbohydrate to eat in its whole state as much as possible. Is that correct? I think that is an accurate uh, description (laughs) of my view. Okay. So if people ate that way, which would be a tremendous, (laughs) tremendous change, what percentage of like the, the, all foods have, you know, a mix of carbohydrate, protein, and fat. But what percentage of the diet, if we were looking down, would be this good carbohydrate? What would be fat, in your opinion, and what would be protein, in your opinion, if you can ballpark it? Sure. Well, um, I'm going to give you a somewhat unsatisfying answer. <laughs> all right. Because I think that, number one, human beings uh, can adapt to a wide range of intakes. And I do think that uh, certain dietary components, saturated fats and refined starches and sugars, uh, when consumed in excess, can be problematic. But I also think that they're more problematic for some people than others. So for somebody who's very active, they can tolerate quite a bit more refined starch and added sugar without having metabolic problems whereas somebody who's overweight and sedentary uh, is not going to be able to do that. So uh, in general, I think that uh, you can identify foods in the average American diet that are high in added sugars, high in refined starches, and to to the degree that those can be replaced with alternatives that are higher in fiber, higher in Uh, some of the things that come along with whole grains like magnesium and chromium, that that is going to be a more healthful uh, way to consume. And uh, unfortunately, we really have limited clinical trial evidence to look at outcomes, but the observational evidence are consistent, or the observational study results are consistent with those from the limited intervention trials that we have and suggest that more whole grains, nuts, 
seeds and legumes would be a good thing. Fewer added sugars and refined starches uh, would also be a good thing. It's pretty straightforward and common sense. Well, thank you, Dr. Mackey, for coming on the show today. Any closing thoughts? Uh, No uh, closing thoughts. I think we covered the topic pretty well, and I guess uh, the one thing I would say is that the recently released dietary guidelines for Americans, I think, give uh, good advice. I think we need a lot more data to refine that advice, but uh, the uh, database that we have really supports the recommendations that were made by the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Well, I want to thank the audience for listening to this edition of uh, Staying the Staying Healthy Today show. Remember, you can hear this podcast in iTunes. Uh, there will be a summary of what Dr. Mackey and I discussed below the podcast. There will be links to the article, and you can sign up for my health letter at stayinghealthytoday.com. And so, Dr. Mackey, again, thank you so much for taking your time coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition. And until next time, stay and be well. Thank you.